This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. There have been many conversations of late discussing systemic issues. And while we've given many examples of current issues within the justice system, it's important to look back at the foundation of such a system to understand why it operates the way it does today. For Portland, the corrupt history of the police bureau and local government is a story that isn't special to our city, though it does contain some uniquely Portland elements. This is the story of Big Jim Elkins and how pinball machines, teamsters, gangsters, Bootleggers, drug dealers, brothels, and gambling dens in every corner of the city helped form both the Portland police and the city's government, one bribe at a time. Portland, Oregon was incorporated in 1851 and quickly established itself as the top port city north of San Francisco. Its agriculture industry was robust and growing exponentially. Wheat was its dominant export, followed by commercial lumber, agriculture, and then fishies. The city's population exploded with this economic boom, more than doubling in every census taken between 1850 to 1910. And an aftershock of that boom was a lucrative, not-so-secret economy of narcotics, bootlegging, gambling, and sex work. It has always been a drug town, and from its genesis, Portland became known for its lax attitude regarding vice some examples of which I will describe from some of the city's earliest days. Quote, By 1853, Portland streets remained in such disorder that editor Thomas J. Dreyer of the Oregonian complained, Our city of late has been the scene of disgraceful midnight rows and bacchanalian revelry by a group of vagabonds hanging around the low groggeries in the daytime and destroying property at night. Portland's first stab at official law enforcement took place in response when it elected its first of seven city marshals that same year, tasked with maintaining law and order, and in 1870, replaced the marshal system with the Portland Police Bureau and hired its first chief, James Lapius, the last of the serving marshals who had transplanted himself to Oregon in 1851, or more accurately, that was when he fled to the Pacific Northwest. Before that, he ran a saloon in New Helvetia, California, which is now a part of central Sacramento frequented by former members of his army unit who were associated with the racially-based criminal gang The Hounds, the saloon was attacked by a vigilance committee, meaning a posse of vigilantes with guns, after the lynching of two members of The Hounds. Lapius arrived in Portland with gobs of money from his California saloon undertaking and quickly became part owner of the Orofino Theater and the Gem Saloon, neighboring businesses located downtown on First between Stark and Oak. The largest and ritziest in the region, the Orofino and the Gem offered gambling, nude dancing and other sex work, surely the most potent of narcotics, and possibly even the weirdest of 19th century highs I found, dabbing chloroform on the upper lip for some voluntary vapors swooning. I might try that. (laughs) Whoa. Isn't that nuts? Like in a bar? 
Yeah, you just yeah, they just give you like a dab, dab some on your like your handkerchief and then you'd go. Oh my gosh. And would that be equivalent to like I don't know, like huffing glue or something? Probably, like that? yeah. Yeah, something that would just it sort la- of it lasts long there. Wow. Yeah. Longer, excuse me. Not that I've done it. Mm. I people really were all about knocking each other out. Back yeah, then and like robbing them. And shit. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny because yeah, you look back and it's like wow, they, times were so hard. They didn't even have indoor plumbing or electricity, and and you know they powered through and got things done. And here we are with every luxury of the world, and it's like days are hard. Yeah, they were sniffing chloroform to get through the day. <laughs> like <laughs> things weren't that great. The gem had poker and blackjack, but its most popular game and the one most popular across the country at the time was Pharaoh. That's spelled F-A-R-O. Gameplay in Pharaoh is essentially just betting on whether or not the next card turned by the dealer would be a designated winner or a designated losing card. And there were also standing patrons around the table who were throwing down side bets and making verbal bets amongst themselves. So it's like really exciting, like a, yeah. like a craps table. That sounds fun. And also kind of sounds like war. Maybe war descendant from that. Yeah, kind of like war, but there's no, you, the, the, the cards aren't competing against one another. Yet. Right. Oh, okay. And it was all very exciting, except for the cheating. <laughs> Crooked pharaoh dealers, the only kind there were, used rigged but undetectable dealing boxes because, quote, running a square game is not only unprofitable, but dangerous. Pharaoh is only profitable if you cheat, and if you don't cheat, it's statistically possible for a lucky player to go on a bank-breaking run and put you right out of business. The Orofino also featured traditional clothed theater performances, but who gives a crap? Boo. After nine years of saloon proprietorship and marshalling, Lapius became police chief in 1870, and it was reported that he had, quote, established a stable police force and a mostly peaceful town. But he was plagued with accusations of corruption and bribery because he was corrupt and bribed people. <laughs> <laughs> he was replaced in his position from 1877 to 1879 and gained it back until 1883 when he retired in the same neighborhood that held his theater and saloon. And my point with all of this is that James Lapius was the first chief, the father of policing in Portland. And if that's your dad, the next generation and those following are going to feel that influence, born of a gangster policeman with ties to a whites-only gang. There was another economic boom when the railroads, the Northern Pacific and Union Pacific, connected to Portland in 1883 and 84 bringing even more new workers and a further expansion of local industry. By this time, the white criminal underworld of Portland was firmly established and had taken over entire square blocks downtown. People of color were also allowed to conduct their illicit business as well, but they were cordoned off in Chinatown and the north and east ends of town and regularly raided when they were seen as rising above their designation. Havens of sex work like the Court of Death between 3rd and 4th and Yamhill and Taylor Whitechapel, also on 3rd and 4th, but between Cooch and Davis, and the Tenderloin, which was adjacent to the Port of Portland and stretched to the now fancy-as-hell Pearl District, were just another feature of the city, a reason to visit. Sex work had become so commonplace, it was given a pass by city real estate investors who owned the land on which these red-light districts were allowed to operate. And a family member of the Meyer and Frank department store legacy called sex workers their most reliable customers because they only paid in cash. Lita Fanshawe's Bordello was next door to the prestigious Arlington Social Club, a place founded in 1867 for rich boys to get drunk and bark at each other over piles of meat and potatoes, and which still exists, 
and used to exclude Jews and non-whites and women until 1988 when mandated by the U.S. Supreme Court. Pretty cool club. Yeah, sounds neat. I'm just curious how sex workers went from being appreciated because of the money they were bringing in and the money they were spending in the economy to it being criminalized. Like what switched? Uh, Really, it was... Well, it was after this crackdown that you'll hear about. Oh, okay, perfect. <laughs> I think, I mean, I don't know, I don't really go into it, but it was like, that was kind of the beginning of, mm. of that happening. I mean, I think into the 60s and maybe even the 70s, there was, uh, downtown was still, I think downtown was called the circus, like that that strip oh, of okay. like first or, you know, whatever down uh-huh. there where the, uh, was, was still bad. But yeah, I think it started to turn in the 50s, which we'll get into later. There was also Nancy Boggs Whiskey Scow, a 40 by 80 foot, 3,200-square-foot, two-story barge used as a floating house of sex work. From Portland, the boat served towns along the Willamette River, as far north as Linton near the Washington border, and south nearly 20 miles to Oregon City. The wildly successful floating business was raided in 1882, which sent Nancy to dry land at Pine and 3rd Street in downtown, where the sex work resumed. Madam Nancy's only penalty for moving to an actual address was that she now had to pay city taxes. These bordellos, brothels, and body houses were a known entity, with many downtown located near its largest churches, and whose activities were tolerated because of the proprietor's discretion, the limit of which meant for the sex workers no flashing from windows or catcalls on Sundays. And I'm sure they still did a brisk bit of business on the Lord's Day, because you're already downtown, So you make your wife and nine kids wait in the wagon while you take a stroll through the court of death. Maybe go to the farmer's market. Typical Sunday. (laughs) The control of narcotics began with the passage of the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906, which required manufacturers to completely list a product's ingredients so one wouldn't accidentally become an opiate or cocaine addict from trying to treat a common cold. In March of 1915, the Harrison Anti-Narcotic Act was passed by the United States Congress, making non-medical opium and cocaine illegal, and requiring registry with the IRS under the Treasury Department for all makers, sellers, and distributors of opium and cocaine, which back in the day meant your local pharmacist, barber, grocer, tailor, tobacconist, goldsmith, or stationer. And probably just everyone you know. Yeah, you just get it anywhere. The act also allowed for the prosecution of those unregistered still distributing the drugs, but it does not mention at all addiction or the treatment those with the dependency would require. The Harrison Act also had the unintended consequence of essentially creating drug crime. Sellers of narcotics had to move their operations underground, and the new lack of availability regarding cocaine and opiates meant users had become more desperate to score, turning to burglary, theft, assault, and murder to get what they needed. And those newly illegal dealers? Oh, baby. They thrived for the next 40 years. Because they had no idea what was in these medicines, mothers would be like, oh, my baby has a cough, and they'd give them a little bit of a tonic, and it would be like so full of opium that their baby would just like die. Yeah, it happened all the time. That's a heartwarming story. (sighs) Marvel of medicine. Nighttime stories with Josh. And that that heroin was, I didn't know, was invented uh, or distilled, purified, whatever, patented by Bayer. They made it. That's pretty cool. In Portland, as the power of these vice lords grew, they entwined themselves with local government and law enforcement entities and were able to operate nearly unchecked. By the 1920s, Portland's vice squad, 
often hampered in its crackdown efforts by corrupt fellow officers, reported $50,000 per month in bribes paid to police for a blind eye by the seemingly endless number of gambling places. In 1930, the predecessor to the DEA, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, was created to enforce the legislation put forward with the Harrison Act, in addition to the Jones-Miller Narcotic Drugs Import and Export Act of 1922. It was a period of growth for those on the other side of the law as well. A storefront sign at 110 Southwest 3rd read, Hop Lee, Merchant Taylor. But when you went inside and through a secret pantry door, you'd find three tables for blackjack and one for craps. It was located only a couple of blocks from police headquarters. Shy Frank Kodat's speakeasy resided above a machine shop on Southeast Water Street near Yamhill. The Hollywood Literary Club on Southwest Broadway, which offered only 32 books and a few magazines, was a front for a gambling room and speakeasy. A basement across the street was the setup for a horse betting enclave. There were illegal gambling spots at 4th and Washington and 5th and Washington. These places were everywhere. The building at 7th and Washington featured gambling and sex workers. The Canton Club, a little further west on the same street, operated openly. A craps table was present as one passed through the front entrance. And its owner always seemed to know when a raid was forthcoming. Quote, Mayor Carson officially opposed vice, but in 1939 he enthusiastically gave a key to the city to famous stripper Sally Rand. Anyway, it seems that dozens, maybe hundreds of vice operations were in action every single day in the Rose City. And it looked as if officials were able to have a public stance against vice and also have a public stance supporting it. And a quick side note, do yourself a favor and Google Sally Rand. She was incredibly talented, a pioneer, a hero. She popularized the fan dance, like burlesque fan dance. Oh, burlesque. Oh, Mm -hmm. cool. She was at the um, like the Chicago World Exposition or something in like 1933 or something like that and was doing her like kind of nude fan dancing in public, like on the streets as part of it, part of it, you know, and got arrested a whole bunch and like <laughs> just all about about doing that work That's and had cool. like a whole um, I think called like the American Girly Sideshows. So it was like her business that she ran forever. And she's very cool. In 1950. Portland staked an unfortunate claim when the FBI launched its 10 Most Wanted Fugitives program. Three of the first men listed had connections there. One was arrested in Beaverton, one had escaped the Oregon State Penitentiary, and one was arrested at a farm outside of Portland. In its first decade of existence, quote, 11 top 10 fugitives were either from Oregon or were caught in Oregon. That decade turned out to be a biggie for the city and its comfy, cozy relationship with organized crime. James B. Elkins came to town in 1937. Born Texan in 1901, he'd spent his early life working as a drug smuggler, bootlegger, and sex trafficker. After serving a five-year sentence in the Arizona State Penitentiary for shooting a police officer during a botched robbery, he moved to Portland to help his brother Fred manage his ring of sex workers, with his main duty being the delivery of bribe money to city government and law enforcement entities. With the arrival of James Elkins came a wave of success for the brothers, and as their empire expanded, the Elkins diversified their business, adding gambling to their list of rackets. And yeah, there were the card games, the horse betting, the lotteries and slot machines, but the real money, the guaranteed money, came from gosh-darn pinball machines. Quote, Pinball had been operating in Oregon since 1935, and in those days was not licensed, merely taxed. $10 to the state, and 50 to the federal government. 
but two years after its debut, it was deemed an epidemic, sweeping the city, and in the eyes of some, was a dangerous gateway to juvenile delinquency. Pinball? No! The reason for this is that the first of those machines were closer to something like skee-ball, but with no skill required. You'd drop in your coin, press a button, and hope a ball dropped into a hole that could net you free play or other redeemable prizes. The machines had no flippers. Those weren't added until the late 40s, so a player could not affect the ball and had to rely solely on luck and maybe a little table nudge to scoot the ball. That doesn't sound very fun. It really doesn't. Or impossible to not be rigged. Yeah. Like as if they wouldn't put a little thing to make it always go into like the losing spot or whatever. You know what I will say, though? The people I know who are into pinball are also really into weed. So maybe it is a gateway. (gasps) Oh, my God. Hmm. (laughs) Like I, I have a friend from high school. He like wins pinball championships around Portland. Wow. I'm pretty sure he's super into weed. <laughs> okay, sounds cool. So because there was no cash payout and the prizes were so inexpensive, the coins amassed like mountains. And the license fees alone paid to the city for amusement-only machines added up to $120,000 per year. That would be almost $2 million today. It's a lot. Yeah. You could see why they would be protective of that. By 1950... The Oregon Journal had christened James Elkins with the moniker Big Jim, which stuck immediately. And it is also at this point that his brother Fred drops out of these events completely. There's never another mention. In 1951, after Portland crime boss Al Winter moved his business to Las Vegas, Big Jim reported a tip to police that led to the raid of, quote, 100 Clackamas County night spots suspected of illegal gambling, which had been run by Winter. With those spots shuttered, bow-tie-wearing James Elkins had wrangled control of all vice, especially pinball, in Portland, with the help of the Seattle Teamsters Union, an unofficial but very real crime syndicate. In 1952, Elkins paid Portland Mayor Fred Peterson $100,000 to appoint his pick for police chief, Diamond Jim Purcell, who accepted $500 every month to turn a blind eye towards Elkins-run establishments. Purcell was chief until December of 1956. Elkins' alliance with the Teamsters went well for a few years, until the city began the process of choosing a site for the eventual Memorial Coliseum on the east side. The Exposition Recreation Commission, tasked with this, was headed by Clyde Crosby, the state's Teamster organizer, who reported directly to Teamster Vice President Frank Brewster and General President Dave Beck, two very scary dudes. So the plan was for Elkins to buy the land, which Crosby would then select for the construction and would enable the Teamsters to force the use of their trucking services at the new arena, which would be a huge moneymaker. But Big Jim messed up big time. He only purchased the land's real estate option and then allowed it to expire because he didn't want the full purchase funded from his own pockets, which he had already agreed to do. And the Teamsters were, let's say, irked at this and literally threatened Jim Elkins with a, quote, wade across Lake Washington with a pair of concrete boots. <laughs> One of my Classic teasters. <laughs> but instead of the awful murder, their plan B was to send a new middleman to lead operations in Portland, with Elkins merely acting as a financier, something he was not into. Elkins may have had control of Portland, but that was slipping, and he knew it. He wanted more territory to maximize his power in hopes to stave off the Teamsters and gangsters in Seattle, 
and he had only one nearby competitor, bootlegger Stan Terry. Terry's pinball turf was Milwaukee, a suburb slightly south of Portland, and Elkins, hell-bent on controlling every Lady Luck, Sea Jockeys, Spitfire, Ace High, and Pixie's machine in the state, wanted Stan Terry out of business. So Elkins would drive down to Milwaukee with half a dozen men, storm into an establishment featuring Terry's machines, and go absolutely apeshit, stealing money and pinball machines, causing your basic mayhem. Then, Stan Terry and his goons would respond by driving up to Portland and pulling the same type of smash and grab at one of Elkins' joints. And I'm, I'm sure it was fun for everyone involved, but it got neither man closer to putting the other's lights out. The perpetual stalemate between Elkins and Terry had to end, so Big Jim went north to ask for help. He traveled to Seattle in 1955 to meet with the Teamsters there. He needed more numbers in his ranks to subsume Stan Terry's operations, and so a plan was hatched to set up a, quote, pinball operators union called the Coin Machine Men of Oregon, affiliate it with the Teamsters, deny Stan Terry the services of the Teamsters' trucks, and finally assemble anti-pinball, pro-union picket lines at businesses that had his machines, all in effort to oust the Milwaukee pinball gangster. So after Elkins made all that stuff take place, Stan Terry was like, oh, damn, I thought we were just doing fun robberies on each other. I guess I'm in danger. <laughs> so he reached out to Al Winter, who had relocated from Portland to Las Vegas to open the Sahara Las Vegas, that hotel. I yes, stayed there. Classic. Big one. I loved the Sahara. Mm -hmm. Me too. He had a great buffet and an actual fun bar. Al Winter had a friend named High Goldbaum, a pit boss at the Flamingo Casino, who had an in with the Teamsters. So Goldbaum personally escorted Terry to Seattle and introduced him to the head of the Teamsters, the guy Elkins hadn't been able to get an appointment with. After the customary payoff was handed over, the Teamsters had called their office in Portland and had the picket lines disbanded. The Teamsters were now on Stan Terry's side of the pinball wars, and Big Jim had accidentally squeezed himself out of the action. With all that leverage behind Terry, Elkins was forced to sell off his machines and turn over his collection routes. At the same time, Elkins lost the support of Chief Purcell, who perhaps could see his reign was over, and decided to jump ship. The new mayor, Terry Shrunk, was not having any of Elkins' crap. The previous mayor, Fred Peterson, had been in Big Jim's pocket, even rejecting anti-gambling legislation for the man. And now that Peterson was out of office, Elkins was out of backup, and he became desperate. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. 
Right now, our listeners can give Armour a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. After a pathetic attempt to rob Stan Terry of Elkin's own machines, Big Jim, weakened nearly to forfeit by his overreaching grasp at total control of Portland, sought out journalists William Lambert and Wallace Turner of the Oregonian newspaper. Called remarkably candid by Turner and Lambert, James Elkin's statements, on file with the Washington County Courthouse, were stunners. In the series of articles, the first of which was printed on April 21, 1956, Big Jim said Teamsters union bosses had tried to hire him, that he had been on a first-name basis with Multnomah County District Attorney William Langley, and that they had been co-owners of a Beaverton restaurant-slash-gambling den since 1954, called the China Lantern. Elkins further claimed he'd backed William Langley financially and politically twice in the man's efforts to become Multnomah County DA, which he had been since November of 1954. The headlines from this series of articles summarize things quite well. And these are all going to be quotes here. District attorney close to gambler group. Control of pinball by Teamsters scene. Subpoena brings Elkins into jury investigation. Teamster chief builds political machinery. Mayor refuses offer to Teamster paid manager and ouster of chief police Jim Purcell. Elkins, Langley, Crosby, Amity, and Rift traced. Business and politics bring trio together. Attempt Baird to use grand jury, governor. And finally, Top Teamster seeks police chief ouster. So they were busted, basically. Fully. Big Jim also provided the Oregonian with several recordings he'd made in secret, which, quote, supported his claims of behind-the-scenes manipulations, payoffs, and corruption involving local racketeers, the police, political figures at all levels of government, and Teamsters union leaders. Elkins had wiretapped several apartments rented by Teamsters, I believe in a building he owned or had control over, and captured Teamster officials and Seattle crime figures straight up admitting to labor crimes. On these tapes, Elkins had captured District Attorney Langley, Teamster Associates, and Seattle gamblers Thomas Maloney and Joseph McLaughlin, as well as others discussing damning topics like having Elkins killed, having him put in jail, their choice for a new police chief, the Coliseum real estate scam, bribes paid to local officials, etc., these tapes were double-stuffed with conspiracy. And they forgot that he was their landlord? I think they might not have known, and just, um, I mean, who would think that, you know? I mean, I guess they should have, but... Yeah. yeah. So he had, yeah, he <laughs> he just, like, ran wires in, like, a bunch of people's apartments <laughs> and just, like, record. And that was, like, apparently his thing. He did that, off, like, often and kind of used it to, to get leverage on I was going to say, maybe that was always his backup plan for yeah. if he gets backed in a corner, he can at least fall back on. If you guys aren't going to be my friends anymore, tattling. I'm going to tattle about <laughs> everything we said and did. I like it. D.A. Langley claimed the tapes had been doctored, but everyone said, no. <laughs> and he was removed from office in 1957 after his April conviction for failing to prosecute gambling in Portland. That conviction was eventually overturned, and the proven corrupt Langley served no time in prison. No way. And he was eventually readmitted to the bar association. No. Yeah. Jeez. 
that's the guy I want representing me. Yeah. He knows the ins and outs. (laughs) Guys, we don't need to go back and double check those cases. Everything's fine. It was later found that before spilling his beans to the Oregonian, Elkins had first tried to use his recordings to blackmail D.A. Langley and Clyde Crosby. And when they batted him away, believing they had far more power than Elkins, Big Jim went to the reporters. The publication of these articles and their stunning accusations resulted in a massive probe into vice by Portland police, the most well-oiled piece of the local corruption scene, and, quote, became the starting point for a major investigation of labor racketeering. The Portland vice probe climaxed in March of 1957, after Elkins' recordings were shared with the FBI and brought about a Senate hearing by the McClellan Committee on Improper Activities in Labor and Management, after an investigation by its Rackets Committee chief counsel, Robert F. Kennedy. As in the Robert F. Kennedy? The Robert F. Kennedy, yeah. I'm not sure, but I feel like this is sort of where he made his bones, like Mm. his first big, like, yeah, I think so. That would make sense. Yeah. Quote, Crosby, of the Teamsters, accused City Commissioner Stanley Earle of being in cahoots with Elkins and the Oregonian journalists in the Bourbon and Ham Club. (laughs) How do I get a membership to that? I mean, we're going to talk about it. The allegations concerning the Bourbon and Ham Club were denied. (laughs) Various witnesses indicated that the club was merely a device used to celebrate elections. The Bourbon and Ham Club held meetings at the press club, during which everyone could drink all the bourbon, eat all the ham, and play all the poker they wanted. The club served as a meeting place for politicians and the press, and as such was part of the established informal network in Portland. Indeed, the involvement of gamblers in occasional meetings of the Bourbon and Ham Club points out the essentially corrupt nature of the relationships between city, newspaper, and gambling people. They weren't big on subtlety, huh? And in my research, I could find zero articles like mentioning the Bourbon and Ham Club. I found it in this one document that was like a 300-page document about this entire vice probe and James Elkins. But then I realized the reason there's no articles about it is because the newspaper men were in the Bourbon and Ham Club. And so they're not going to start like telling people about it. The Bourbon and Ham Club met on Tuesday to discuss next year's budget. Yeah, so it's just like it was like part of the whole the whole conspiracy, <laughs> honey baked. And uh, uh, a side note, I think our audience should be the Bourbon and Ham Club, and the <laughs> listeners should be uh, the, the listeners should be called Hammers, Bourbon Hammers, or the Pork Buffet Gang. <laughs> oh my God, Pork Buffet Gang! Oh Lord. Quote, as for Elkins, the beginning of the end came in 1956, when a number of prominent Portlanders, including Mayor Terry Shrunk, were hauled off to Washington to testify for a corruption investigation headed by Robert Kennedy that destroyed numerous political careers. Elkins' own testimony sowed the seeds of his undoing. With his key lieutenants under indictment, his power evaporated. In the wake of the McClellan committee hearing, Wallace Turner and William Lambert received the 1957 Pulitzer Prize in local reporting for their expose of vice and corruption in Portland involving some municipal officials and officers of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Chauffeurs, Warehousemen, and Helpers of America, Western Conference. They fulfilled their assignments despite great handicaps and the risk of reprisal from lawless elements. Through two appeals processes, Elkins was eventually acquitted of the 12 charges he faced in connection with organized crime in Portland. Burdened with a lifelong heroin addiction, his health declined with the fall of his empire, and he died in a car crash in Arizona in 1968. And some say he was murdered, 
pushed off the road by an unidentified driver into a fatal collision with a utility pole. At the time, he was under an indictment in Portland for possession of a firearm, conspiracy to commit a felony, possession of dangerous drugs, and receiving stolen property, and was out on a $20,000 bond. And there was even a movie made about these events called Portland Expose from 1957, which is available in full on Tubi and is very silly, but a somewhat accurate retelling of the events of, uh, of, these, uh, of Jim, Jim Elkins and the Pinball Wars. Uh, and, and the movie features like really great shots of old Portland from the 50s and it has a pulpy plot and people are like reefer madness level panicked about <laughs> pinball machines. Um, and I think it's worth watching, but I'm also a fool. And... Whenever I hear boring, I know I'm ready to watch it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was wild seeing the downtown uh, like Burnside going up, you know, mm. to the west side. Just completely different. It was really very cool. Yeah, I went into the office and you had that on. I only saw like a snippet at the airport. Oh, yeah. And the little plane landed and they were walking up the tarmac to go inside. Yeah, and... It looked like, I think the Portland airport sign was like a neon sign. Yeah, but it was the same font. <laughs> yeah, it, was it was like, oh, that's that's it. That's anyway, so it's cool for that stuff and you really get it. It really paints a picture. And here are a few goodbye fun facts to grow on. On The Simpsons, the mayor of Springfield, Diamond Joe Quimby, is loosely based on Portland Chief of Police Diamond Jim Purcell. That's fun. That is very fun. Pinball was illegal until 1976. Like Four Loco, drag shows, and TikTok, the man has always tried to take our fun away. <laughs> and finally, the best-selling pinball game of all time, released in March of 1992, is the kooky, spooky, altogether ooky really? classic, The Addams Family. Wow. Have you guys ever played that? Yes. It's a great game. The hand comes out and grabs the ball. <laughs> I played a lot at my mom's bar that she oh, yeah. worked at, but I don't remember any of the games specifically. I'm kind of surprised it's Adam's family. I think I would have guessed like uh, Terminator. I feel like that one's everywhere. That, that one's, one's good. good. <laughs> that one is good. <laughs> I think the Adam's family, one, the movie came out and it was huge, and two, the, it really does have... Things that I've, I've never seen on another yeah, pinball machine. It's a very true. cool pinball machine. That's I like true. it. And I love Raul Julia. <laughs> well, that was fascinating. Thank you. I think you hear those dates and you're like, what does that matter? But like the 50s was not that long ago. My parents were born then. They're <gasps> thriving. Just kidding. You know, like <laughs> it just it just wasn't. And so it's like if that was what was in place. At what point did it did someone come in and go, we're done with this corruption and whatever? It's like, that's how the system started. So you don't have anything in place to be different than that. It's funny. Yeah, like the Portland Police Bureau's legacy is pretty tarnished. Like yeah. when you look from the get go. Well, yeah, when I looked up certain all the police chiefs that there had been, I, I got to to James Purcell and you go to that to his like site on whatever web, website that is about like those those officers. And it was just his picture just said what he was and it just said when he was alive it, so it didn't, it didn't mention anything about <laughs> no anything, legacy to nothing. be left yeah so it's just yeah there's a lot of that and i like too that it's like there was no control no regulation no nothing in place and everyone was doing chloroform and opium and heroin and coke and all this stuff and then they're just like it's illegal now the good old days with, <laughs> well yeah but like with nothing in place yeah, nothing in place. And it was really, I, well, I, I think it's like those acts were really made to 
they're made to punish. You know, they're not yeah, made to treat. Yeah. They're made to like. It's like, wait hurt a minute. People. Look at all these people using this. What if we made that illegal? Well, and especially, I read one article that said that addiction wasn't a problem until non-white people started being addicted, mm. and then they and then the government was like, we need to stop oh, this. Right. So, and it's kind of like classic it, stuff. It, it kind of brings it full circle because, you know, last year we passed to the decriminalization law. Yeah. And so many people are saying, you know, it's not working. It's not doing what we thought, which there are issues. You know, it's like a new thing. At least the effort is there to say, OK, we're not going to be wasting our taxpayer dollars on this stuff. So let's use it to help these people. So it's kind of interesting that, it, you know, 100 years later, it's kind of gone full circle to decriminalize it and then to try to provide that support instead of like oh you guys are in your opium den all day you can't yeah we're gonna cut it off and we're not gonna tell you how to get help yeah (laughs) yeah that's interesting and that's like i don't know you don't really think of portland as a mafia town yeah nor seattle i didn't even think about that but i guess just having i mean you have the imports and exports of the ports 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 yeah that's probably a, a good Good reason. And the Teamsters up there, too, because of all the trucking that they would have to do for all of the things coming in and going. Yeah. Wow. Man. Yeah. It was it was uh, yeah, it was a big it was a big it was really kind of an entertaining thing for me to get into because it took so much research and I had to learn so much about pinball and (laughs) Pharaoh and everything. It was really, really. Should we go play some interesting? Yeah. What's that place downtown? That game? They have a bunch of pinball machines. Yeah. Um, Control. Yeah. Yeah. Control. Mm -hmm. They have a ton. Hell yeah. Yeah. They have fun ones there. Dave and Buster's. I do love Dave and Buster's. I've been wanting to go there so badly. Well, we should have a work dinner, work lunch. See, that makes sense when I was saying that about pinball was kind of like Dave and Buster's where you'd play, you'd get like essentially Yeah, tickets, like a ticket exchange. And then you could exchange that yeah. for, yeah. So basically like your, I think like your score, if your score was high enough, you'd be like, oh, I want to like exchange this for that plate. Like you could, you could over time, I think eventually like win like a set of China. Right. But it was all like cheap and just. Yeah, it's like the same as now. Yeah. The value of what oh, I'm getting. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid and I won prizes at like, I think it was a roller skating rink. Fun. And they were like, okay, you have like a hundred tickets here. You can have this like, Pencil eraser. Oh, yeah, we had or, that. I'm not kidding you. Two mini t- Tootsie Rolls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Two cents at the Dairy Mart. It was ridiculous. <laughs> but just winning was the point for a kid. Like, That's we true. didn't yeah. care about that. Yeah. I just played um, at Pietro's Pizza, I think. Oh. Anyway, we had like thousands of tickets, but I, I don't even know what she ended up getting because I had to leave. But Let's yeah, we're, we're best. I love a pencil case. Pretty much. Oh, uh, Portland, also fun pinball fact. We have the highest amount of pinball machines per capita, I believe, in the world. Definitely in the U.S. Along with our breweries. Look at that. Yeah, and strip clubs. So we're an awesome town. So we haven't changed much. (laughs) Yeah, not really. (laughs) And now we're back to being kind of like a dirtbag town because everyone's leaving. Well, it's trying to get back to how it was like, listen, you techie Californian rich people. Like, no, I am Get your Ritz Carlton out of here. It feels like a true transplant rejection. Well, that's fascinating. And you know me. I like to get my money back if I have to learn something. But I was glad to learn all of this. Right? Yeah. Good. It was informative. And that stuff does matter. It's like you can't you can't always just tell stories, you know, and say like, and then the cops dropped the ball and this happened. And it's like you ha- you do have to go back to really understand like, oh, it was founded by a mobster who was in a white supremacist gang who then bribed everybody. Well, and it helps understand the contention today mm-hmm. that there really hasn't been a lot of movement this is very interesting oh great thank you and it's nice it's kind of inherently lighthearted. i mean it's awful but it's like but it also sets like a good tone for some of the other stuff we talk about mm-hmm. now 
yeah, that was it's kind of what I realized as I was writing it. It started out just being about this gangster. And then I was realizing it's actually about like the history of yeah. law enforcement and local government in Portland. And it wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> Most of our cases aren't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who's uh, more interested in like the history and stuff, my sources, I have. Uh, well, one, I have a link to that Portland expose movie. But two, I have the this 300-page document that goes through the whole Vice probe, and is uh, it's just a PDF you can download. It's fascinating. I I highly recommend it. Cool. Um, That'll be on the blog. For all right, episode. nerds, let's get to it. <laughs> That's it. Crime has always been here. That's right. And um, pinball's fun. Thanks for be- thanks for being there, pinball. When I needed you. <laughs> oh my god. Bye. Pretty cool. Of old. And then Nicole, what's your mom's name? (laughs) Valerie. Yeah, I was right. Just don't scream because you're. Or mess up. Yeah. Check. Just actual screaming, not your your talking voice. (laughs) Just don't scream. (laughs) Hmm. Sorry. I built that into the. Wait, you don't want me to scream into the microphone into your ear holes? This is making me want to scream. Did you guys hear my elbow? Yeah, I disgusting. thought that was your knuckles. God, Ew. God, you're disgusting. You sicken me, <laughs> nasty boy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think I'm a nasty boy? Tonight I'll be your nasty boy. <laughs> I wrote the word bootleg game. Oh, Sounds like bo- a good time. Bootlegum. Bootlegum. I love legumes and boots. <laughs> Yum. Bean boots. Bean boots. (laughs) Tasty treat. And comfy on my feet. Is that why it's called Bean Town? (laughs) Yes. Boston baked boot beans. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, no. Who had transplanted him. Jesus. There's a T in there. there. Transplanted. Don't know if you knew. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just here to help. Before that, he ran a soon. A soon. That's saloon, mm-hmm. if you take out a couple of letters. <laughs> and after nine years of saloon proprietorship, proprietorship, <laughs> proprietorship, people of color were also allowed to conduct their, Jesus, Kentucky, am I saying? Mm-hmm. Kentucky? Kentucky their business? Mm-hmm. Are you trying to say conduct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too good. Tough what where? Hey. Balls in his butt. Oh, dear. Oh. Look, I got a vagina. Oh, <laughs> I, I know, Em. Boyfriend <laughs> in high school. Oh, boy. He used to tuck his, and then he'd oh, rip the shower curtain open and go, look, I have a vagina. Why were you guys in the bathroom? I wasn't. She told me oh. the story. <laughs> it just, I didn't need to tell that part. <laughs> Would you fuck me? <laughs> I'd fuck me. <laughs> You don't know what pain is. Until your balls are stuck up your butt? <laughs> no, it was another Silence of the Lambs oh. line. <laughs> but probably that, too. That might be my new favorite blooper. <laughs> you don't know what pain is. Until you got your balls up your butt. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a reverse blooper. That was something that I should have said. Yeah. <laughs> when you got your balls up your butt. Then <laughs> you both gasp. You go, no. <laughs> but far, she says it and we hard. giggle. Yeah. You're so funny, Emily. <laughs> <laughs>
That's true. <laughs> ah, sexism. Yep. <laughs> From Portland, the Bort. Bort. <laughs> Excuse me, my son is also named Bort. <laughs> In case he needs a kidney or something. Probably. But guess what? I won't give it. Yeah. You'll, you'll get one removed and just throw it away. It's not rejected from his body. I'm rejecting it yeah, from to him. Yeah, it will body. not be, yes. I'm rejecting the invitation. I reject your request for my kid. Knee. In Portland, as the power of these vice gourds. In addition to the Jones-Miller narcotic. Could we get our hands on some chloroform? For ourselves, just to try it out on just each to other. Do, just well to do some dabs, but not like. Not that, that I was kind. googling how to make chloroform, but I was for a different case googling chloroform, and you can like pretty darn easily make it. Good it's night. like two ingredients. Me, I sleep great. <laughs> I just <laughs> thanks, I just chloroform myself. Rag on my face. <laughs> thanks to chloroform from Nyquil. Would that be a fun game? You get a, we all get chloroform no. soaked. Let me finish. <laughs> I'm in handkerchiefs or whatever. And we, 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 whatever, douse them all. And at the same time, we put them on our faces and see who can, who can like dance for the longest. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I rushed to judge. Thank you. Because that would be kind of funny. Who can hold out the longest? God. I'm totally in. <laughs> can I just take Tylenol PM? I remember my mom dropping me off at a babysitter's one night and was like, you can just give her NyQuil. Oh, my God. And I'm like, I'm not sick. <laughs> um, That's not right. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>